0: Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I'm speaking with Frank Wilczek. Frank won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2004 for work he did as a graduate student. He was also one of the earliest MacArthur Fellows, and he has won many other awards for his scientific work and writing. He is the author of several books, but most recently he has published a fantastic primer on... The state of Physics, and that is called Fundamentals 10 Keys to Reality. He's also written for the Wall Street Journal. He is currently a professor of physics at MIT, and he's also the chief scientist at the Wilczek Quantum Center in Shanghai, China. And he also has appointments at Arizona State University and Stockholm University. A busy man. Anyway, you will hear that Frank is a wonderful explainer. Of physics. And I really couldn't have asked for a better guide to this terrain. We discuss the difference between science and non science, the role that intuition plays in science, and then we plunge into the matter at hand. We discuss the nature of time, the prospect that possibility is an illusion, and that only the actual is ever real. Uh, We talk about the current limits of quantum mechanics, the uncertainty principle. Space time as a substance, the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in science, and the possibility that we might be living in a simulation. We cover the fundamental building blocks of matter as we know it, the structure of atoms, the four fundamental forces, wave particle duality, the electromagnetic spectrum, the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, the prospect of infinite space time. We really get the full tour here, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And now, without further delay, I bring you Frank Wilczek. I am here with Frank Wilczek. Frank, thanks for joining me. It was
1: a very great pleasure to be here.
0: You've written a, a wonderfully accessible book. You've written several books, but the new one is Fundamentals, Ten Keys to Reality. And I highly recommend people read it because it's just a a fantastic and uh, just amazingly digestible introduction to really the whole history of physics, but our modern picture of the universe, which we'll talk about here, but by no means fully cover. But before we jump in, how is it that you have an opinion about the nature of physical reality? What maybe summarize your uh, your intellectual perch over there in Massachusetts?
1: Well, I have I grew up very curious about the world from many points of view. I grew up during a time when science was very highly valued, be, uh, partly because of the Cold War and the memory mm-hmm. of World War II, which was relatively fresh, although that was before my time. And so uh, at the same time, I was very interested in Cosmic things. I was very. I, I was raised in a Catholic church, so I got exposed to these ideas that there are deeper meanings to the world, and read Bertrand Russell. Read Ein, Einstein was a big hero. So it sort of seemed like a very. Na- it sort of seemed like very natural to me <laughs> to uh, deepen my knowledge of science and physical reality. And that's what I've spent the bulk of my life doing. And it's been a great trip. <laughs> and mm. I've learned a lot, had a lot of surprises, a lot of adventures, and a lot of positive feedback. <laughs> and, and I feel I've learned a lot. If, if, I, uh, if I could transport myself back to, to myself as a teenager, I would have a lot to convey. And that's, that's one of the things that mm. I... Was thinking about as I wrote this book. the The other spur to it was conversations with in, intelligent friends who wanted to know the, what I was doing, what I had learned, what's really going on at the frontiers of science. How do you separate the wheat from the chaff? And 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 I also, what does it all mean? So mm. so I, I I really wanted to take the opportunity to answer my friend's questions and my own questions from way back when. And at the same, and just fortuitously at the same time, my grandson was born. And I started to think about uh, what I'd like to tell him when he's ready to answer these questions. And also watching the process of how he constructed his world, making basic distinctions between self and not self. And getting the idea that the world is organized into a three-dimensional space with objects that have some kind of permanence and regularity. These very basic things we learn about the world that get get us by very well. And yet I reflected that the scientific view that is revealed to our most accurate experiments and critical thinking, once we use telescopes and microscopes and spectrometers and accelerometers and all the other kinds of things that l- allow us to get more accurate perceptions, and also to think, and also to think critically about them. It's a different world, and and, rec- and I like to say you have to be born again to come to terms with reality. You have to mm. not only learn some things, but also unlearn some rules of thumb that that you construct for yourself as a child.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I would like to. Um try to recapitulate that journey for our audience here and, and really start with the the minimum set of assumptions and 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 uh, overturn some of the assumptions that that make it difficult to think scientifically I, i'm struck with how unintuitive many of the tools of scientific thinking are and they're hard to make intuitive some may we kind of bootstrap ourselves to new intuitions on the basis of others that are almost defied by where we land. Before we jump into the physics of things, maybe we can start by differentiating science from non-science. And I guess one way to do that, and this is actually something you you mentioned early in the book, is to describe why something like astrology isn't science. How do you make? How do you demarcate science from non-science? In that's just a yes. conceptual endeavor. Y-
1: yes, it's a it's actually a complex question, and the the short answer is that science works <laughs> and non-science doesn't work. So it could have been that uh, you it could have been that you could make successful predictions for people's personalities for their destiny based on the positions of things in the sky when they were born but over centuries of trying to refine that that possibility into an actual tool for making useful predictions it hasn't been very successful whereas a very different interpretation of what the things we meet out in the sky mean and the forces they exert and what kinds of influences they could possibly have back here on Earth uh, has been much more successful. It's kind of led to one successful prediction after another. And nowadays we can put men in space and, and really you know, do many impressive things with the GPS system and look, look back to the Big Bang and make predictions about how distant galaxies are gonna look and how, how the microwave background is put together and many, many other things that, that work. So we have on the one hand, a coherent body of explanations that's built on patient investigation with the most accurate instruments we can ha- find and demanding very high standards of proof. You know, they're trying to push things as hard as possible, make them quantitative, make them precise, worrying when things don't quite agree instead of trying to explain it away. And that's been so that, you know, you can compare and contrast and you know it when you see it. One of them is scientific, the other is not scientific. I think that, that's, mm. that's the difference. I mean, so it's not, even, it's not even the subject matter so much as the approach and whether, whether it's critical, whether it takes correction and whether it works. And those, are, mm. those are the defining criteria, whether it's scientific.
0: If we could put the final nail in the coffin of astrology, it seems to me obviously disprovable in at least two ways, or, or one and a half ways. I mean one way to to <laughs> see that it's almost certainly not true in its basic assumptions is to recognize that this idea that the position of the stars and planets must affect yeah. the life course of a of a person born. Based on the the time and place of their birth, that's belied by the fact that that a a doctor or nurse walking by in the hall exerts more of, of nature's forces <laughs> on, on the child than anything up in the heavens
1: yes if if you take seriously the successful description of the world uh, there's no room in it for such astrological mm. influences that's 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 true so so and, and on the other hand, we have a lot of circumstantial evidence that it's I mean, we have a lot of more than circumstantial evidence that the principles of that description are remarkably complete, and mm. so the fact that there's no room for it for astrological influences means there are no astrological influences I think that's fair and, and even short
0: of that even if even if we didn't accept physics yet, you could still run the experiment of finding two babies born at the same moment in the same hospital, yes, you know, mere right. feet apart, and you just have to find right. two such babies that have importantly different <laughs> lives.
1: Well, famously, people uh, talked about, I think, going back to St. Augustine, if not earlier, because St. Augustine didn't like astrology either, mm-hmm. and uh, he, he argued about identical twins having very different fates. Right, And right. you might say, they're well, they're not quite at the same time, but if your predictions depend so sensitively on the exact time they they they're almost impossible to make in yeah. practice so so it becomes empty right
0: yeah okay well now we've pissed off the astrologers now we can move on to <laughs> even well, more controversial you, you things
1: you can you know you can you can have fun with it if you if you have a sense of humor and it gives some people to it gives people a thing to talk about and and break yeah. the ice sometimes on dates or whatever but, but no as a, as an, as an, as a serious enterprise for predicting the future or predicting someone's mm. personality, I, I don't think it's serious at all.
0: Well, the, the fun you should have with it is to give everyone Charles Manson's astrological chart and notice that virtually everyone finds something resonant in it with their own personality <laughs> until they find out whose chart it is. So then let's start with this issue of intuition and how we use it in reason, generally, and in in science specifically. And many of the intuitions we need to use in science are mathematical, and they get pushed into areas where most people's intuitions reliably fail.
1: I guess I'm wondering if... I think everybody's. (laughs) uh, But the only way to build up intuition is to sort of uh, work with nature and think about examples and think about very simple examples and get to more complicated ones and figure out what the equations and experiments are telling you. Mm.
0: So here's a very simple one which boggles the minds of most people. I'm, I'm wondering if you as a, a physicist and, and mathematician ever really get your intuitions around this. So you take something like the, mm-hmm. the validity of exponentiation, the very simple way to to illustrate its powers, you, you ask someone what would happen if you could take a very large sheet of newsprint and fold it upon itself a hundred times in a row, right? And since people imagine doing this and well, they, uh-huh. they may sense that there's some trick in the off in here, but when you ask them how thick the resulting object would be, many people suggest something like the size of a brick or they, they get, they sort of uh-huh. see how the trick is done <laughs> and they think, well, maybe it's, it's, it could be 10 feet tall if you could yeah. if you could fold a piece of paper that that many times but of course it's light years across i mean it's, it's galaxy size if you could do such a thing
1: if you could keep up yeah. right
0: now do you actually have an intuition for that or do you just know that that powers of 2 have those consequences well
1: i do in the sense that i can very quickly figure out what the answer is <laughs> and i'm not shocked by it mm. so that and that's i guess that'll if you if you want to call that intuition i guess yes and i also you know i i'm also alert to the fact that this kind of question is taking me out of the realm of familiar experience right very rapidly so so that's that's what i meant by building up intuition you build up intuition by thinking about hard examples and thinking them through and really digesting them and then you can have intuition that's correct and useful about things that you didn't have intuition about before or Mm. where you had incorrect intuitions that's 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 uh, a small example of this process i love to call being born again Mm. that that you you have to go back and really open yourself up to reality and take it as it comes and speak its speak its language in order to uh get the most out of it (laughs)
0: Okay, well, let's see if we can baptize everyone with the the vision of <laughs> science here. Yes. So here's the starting point for apes like ourselves. With our open eyes and outstretched hands, we interrogate the world around us. We, as you point out, at a certain point, differentiate ourselves from the world, and we begin to act in it and upon it, and we develop intuitions about space and time as the context of our adventures here and we yes. have a sense of events that happen in space and time right so things seem to happen yes and we have a a thirst for at a certain point we have a thirst for a causal explanation for why and how things happen and And we have some sense that with an explanation, we will be able to be less surprised in the future by future happenings. Let's start with time. And obviously, we're going to land in space-time eventually and, (laughs) and have a more sophisticated description of things. But how do physicists think about time?
1: Well, there's a lot to be said about time. In fact, the accurate measurement of time Using atomic clocks is one of the great frontiers of physics. Now mm. we can we can synthesize clocks that lose or gain time relative to one another at the level of one second over the lifetime of the universe. And accurate clocks are the are a central central feature of the GPS system and and all kinds of things. So uh, we have successful. Ways of measuring time, and of course, our whole apparatus of predicting what's going to happen in the future is based on using equations that contain a variable called t, that's time, that uh, is has is is what is the basis of our intuitive notion of time. I don't think there's a separate thing that's our intuitive notion of time, but our intuition is is a has, as I say, a handy description of the underlying physical reality that people have captured in 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 the equations, in the basic equations that describe how the world works. And it's very remarkable because there's well, the deepest facts about time are is that it's a one-dimensional manifold and and that there's only one time. Everybody Everybody and everything in the universe marches to the same beat. It's an amazing thing if you think about it. It didn't have to be that way. Computers don't necessarily work that way. You can ship things off to another module that runs at a different speed and so forth. Hmm. Our memories and psychology certainly don't work that way. We can loop back. We can leap into the future. But the physical world seems seems to have only one time that everybody Agrees on, and we humans sort of experience that in music and dance when we can keep time with ourselves and also with others and not run into inconsistencies.
0: But the time of intuition is a measure of change, right? We have we have things in the world that change with a, a certain frequency, and we these things are clocks. Again, this is something you point out in your book that we make a lot of this, but certain things are reliable
1: clocks, but Really, everything is a clock. Your aging body is a clock. Everything is a clock. That's right. I like to say everything is a clock. Some of them are harder to read than others. But the precise meaning of that, if you think about it, is that when you write down the equations that describe change, there's a quantity in those equations called T. And as I said, there's only one such quantity that that seems to work Mm -hmm. for everybody, and that so in principle, if you measure the change, you can infer, you know, measure what's happened, you can infer how much T has changed and, and everything is a clock in a broad sense. But of course, we want to have clocks that are portable and, and uh, reusable so you can keep measuring an interval of time accurately the same time over and over again and, and things like that. So when we, when we think of clocks as as the instruments of time it's it's a special case where where they are specially adapted adapted to make the the readout of time easy but but in in a larger sense everything that changes is a clock i think that that's correct i mean hmm. human beings are clocks they age right so in principle if you could uh Study the cellular processes really accurately, you might be able to, re- to use a human as an actual clock. But if we can all do that roughly, we can estimate people's age and so forth.
0: Mm. Yeah. Every time I look in the mirror in the morning, I, I know what time it is. It's later. <laughs> but what do we make of this intuition that time itself flows or moves? Because be, what, we're, what we're talking about is a measure of change. Yeah. And Against what could we say time is changing or moving? That seems
1: like a a contradiction. Time itself. Yeah. Yeah. Time itself, I'm I'm afraid I won't be able to give you a really satisfying answer (laughs) because in the current formulation of physics, the fact or the the, I mean the the axiom, I guess, the assumption that time is a one-dimensional continuum. Is rock bottom. We don't know how to explain it in terms of anything simpler. At least I, I certainly don't, and I haven't seen anyone else do that either. So, in fact, what's truly amazing to me is that, and I don't understand it and I don't like it in some sense, is that the concept of continuum that was developed by the ancient Greeks and is in Euclidean geometry, for instance, that you have this infinitely divisible, uniform Mm -hmm. essence (laughs) is what we use for time in the basic equations of physics, even though we know that in reality, things really change when you get to short distances and short times. You have to bring in quantum mechanics and things have irreducible jiggle and fluctuations Mm -hmm. and wave functions. It's, It's a completely different world in many ways. And yet, there's still in the equations there's this one-dimensional continuum that's time that euclid would have recognized Hmm.
0: in what sense might time be an illusion is that or just a mere construct that is useful for modeling the change we see in the world but but i mean like what, what happened to the concept of a block universe in physics
1: There might be that. Well, there might there might be deeper levels of description not yet constructed. So it's hard to talk about what they are, with any precision. But I can't preclude the possibility. I mean, I'm very sympathetic to the possibility that there would be deeper levels of description in which these Euclidean concepts of continuum run out of steam and Mm. we have to be replaced by something else. But so the idea that there are atoms of time that time is fundamentally discrete. I think if they're going to be atoms, they probably have to be atoms of space-time. We'll come to that, But but I I guess. But but the fact that that the continuum has to be replaced by something else, I think, is, is a very appealing thought because continuum is a very, very complicated concept if you try to define it precisely and axiomatically. The ancient Greeks really struggled with it. And it's really only in the 19th and 20th century that mathematicians got to a satisfactory description, but it's really complicated. It's not, it's not simple and ins- it's not the sort of thing that I would like to have as rock bottom in our description of, of reality.
0: Mm. I'm tempted to open that door and find out why a continuum axiom is imponderable, but, but let's, maybe we'll get to that. I just I want to linger on time for a second. What's happened to this concept of a block universe that was a maybe a hundred year old notion in physics—the idea that past and present and future might all exist simultaneously, despite the fact that we seem to perceive it through a keyhole of a a seemingly moving present?
1: Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, that—that's more an attitude, I would say, than than a uh, a strict, strict, a distinct statement about the universe. I mean, mathematically, if you have a one-dimensional continuum of time, and then you have space and events inside, you can describe three-dimensional space plus plus one-dimensional time as a three plus one or four-dimensional space, Mm. and then it's just a space. (laughs) And, but the, I guess the, and that's, a very legitimate object of contemplation and sort of that's if you like a god's eye view, you can see everything that's ever going to happen or did happen all at once if you could stand outside this four dimensional space and just look at it
0: although in some sense it it didn't happen in that case right then the notion of an event is an yes. epiphenomenon of just how we're how limited our perception is but in some sense and also the, the notion yes. of possibility I mean we live in this in this space of Time and space and space-time, where there are events which we think could have not happened or happened differently, <sighs> and possibility is a thing. But in a block universe, there's no such thing as the possible. There's only the actual, and it's just—it's not even it's certainly not punctate in the same in the way that an event is. So to talk about there's no process. There's just there's no verbs really. There's just a single noun of the actual and. It does make a mockery of of, yeah. of, of time so, and events and and and, and possibility
1: uh, <laughs> yeah well, that's the god's eye view, and yes you can uh, you can imagine a consciousness i suppose that just knows all and and uh, sees it all at once, although you might ask, how is that entity thinking What? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> how does it implement logical right. operations or information processing and I don't know that, that uh, that's uh. I think that leads to madness. But what I I was going to say is, I think the the thing that can be said about this question is that the laws of physics as we have them now are not directly statements about this block world. They're not directly statements about all of space-time. They are statements about if you take a slice, Mm. At any particular time, you can know the state of the universe, know what all the particles in it are doing, and in a quantum mechanical description, what the wave function of everything is. So, this is far beyond what you can actually know. But if you did, in principle, you could calculate what's going to happen in the future and what's going to happen in the past. But it does have this natural division into slices and you have to take you have to start somewhere in order to reconstruct the whole thing so the laws don't naturally describe the whole thing mm-hmm. they describe how things develop in time at least at least the laws we have now mm-hmm. have that character and then of course the other question is that what is this description for who is this description for if it were for god well <laughs> then then the block description might be appropriate but for us poor mortals who are mm. moving along world lines in space-time, it's very useful to have a description that's not the blocked universe that gives us, tells us how the different snapshots get put together mm. and so forth.
0: Let's step back from the God's eye view and, and get into space-time and uh, acknowledge the, the reality of events. But even in this context, so you, you have quantum mechanics now governing our understanding of how things uh, happen. At the smallest mm-hmm. scale, that seems to give us a a probabilistic picture of of what's going to happen in the future. And I'm wondering if even even in, within that frame, if it's possible this will sound paradoxical, but if, is it if it's possible that the idea of the possible is mistaken? I mean, given that there is simply what happens. How can you justify the possible?
1: I think that question is very much, I think that is very much an, op- an open question. The, um, there are aspects of quantum mechanics that are deeply mysterious, and I think subject to change in the future if we understand things better. We may or may not need to, to uh, change the equations, but for sure, I think we need a deeper understanding. Right? Quantum mechanics is less than 100 years old, and it's a profound modification of how we understand the world. It's going to take a while to really absorb. But if you study, if you take a look at how the equations are actually formulated, they are deterministic equations. But they are deterministic. So that so you if you know and they are deterministic equations for something called a wave Mm -hmm. function. So if you know the wave function at one time, then in principle you can solve the equations to figure out what the wave function and therefore the universe is going to be at the next time or what it was at the past time for that matter you can always run them backwards however and this is this is what's really weird you can't know the wave function completely right so the equation wants wants you to tell it the wave function but you don't you don't know the wave function not only not only in practice but even uh, in principle you don't know the wave function because you have to make incompatible process, you have to do incompatible processing on it to extract all its information, putting it roughly but precise, mm-hmm. but, but there are, is a precise formulation. So for instance, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle tells you that even though you have a perfectly definite wave function, if you want to answer questions about position of a particle, you have to process it in one way if you, have to, if you want to answer questions about its momentum, you have to process it in a different way. And those two ways of processing are mutually incompatible, so you can't actually predict either one mm. because you have incomplete knowledge. So that's the situation. We have equations that are perfectly definite, that would be perfectly definite to uh, an observer who knew the wave function completely, but we're not that. and. We have to deal with what are, the, what are the consequences we can draw from the limited information that we have, including, well, let's, let's assume the equations are correct, but we don't know exactly what they're acting upon. So we only get probabilistic predictions.
0: But it's deeper than a, a methodological limitation.
1: Right, it's a deeper than a methodological implication because, in principle, it, because even in principle, you can't pin down the wave right. function. Sort of in, in trying to in trying to pin down some of the information, you destroy other parts of it. Right, there's no way right. of doing it non-invasively.
0: But I, I guess I guess my question here, and and you know, admittedly, it's a a philosophical one more than a a scientific one. I think is given this state of affairs and the disposition here is to say that that certain things are possible and we understand a kind of you know a probability we summarize this possibility mm-hmm. with a with a probability distribution of some sort yes but is it scientifically wrong to say that we don't in fact know that and it is possible again this sounds paradoxical but perhaps isn't it's possible that possibility isn't even a thing, and there really is only the actual. There is simply what happens, and then we have a story about what might have happened that we're adding to that picture. Is there some place to stand within physics to rule that out?
1: No, I don't think so. Hmm. I think the wave fun- <laughs> these quantum mechanical wave functions I've been talking about are very rich objects. And in principle, I'm contained in a quantum mechanical wave function and you're contained in a quantum mechanical wave function. In fact, we're we're contained in the same quantum mechanical wave function that describes the universe as a whole. And different parts of that wave function, which as I mentioned, we don't know completely. And in practice, we only know very little about it compared to what's its full content allows us to make only probabilistic predictions because there's a lot we don't know that we would need to know in order to make definite predictions. Mm. So it's relative to our knowledge, which includes, you know, everything that we know and you know, all the measurements that we've made, all the laws that we, we think we know, all, all the experience that we've had. Relative to our knowledge, our predictions about the future are probabilistic. Mm relative to some unattainable, even in principle, knowledge, some God's eye view of the world, maybe the, the equations are perfectly definite. So if that, if that somehow means something to you, that's also mm-hmm. true. But it, in practice, it doesn't change things very much. So it's kind of philosophical determinism, but practical not determinism. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so let's go back to the, the point of view of the mere ape trying to find his or her way in the world so we have this intuition that we exist in a, a space of 3 dimensions and it's that intuition is is born of this experience that we we really can't figure out any other direction to point than just some combination of backwards yes. forwards left and right and up and down and
1: right it's a pretty solid empirical fact i would say there's certainly only three large dimensions. If, if there are other dimensions, they have a very different character.
0: Right, 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 So, and we do sense that time is distinct from space, and yet yes. now physics has given us a a unified picture of space-time, which is well, you tell me. Yes. How do how do we get? This? Well, it doesn't make
1: them. It doesn't make them the same thing. No, but 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 it's important in understanding the world to treat them together so the idea that you can just stack up a bunch of copies of three-dimensional space and call it you know this is a this is a time t0 then time t1 and so forth that's not wrong but it doesn't do justice to our understanding yeah because for one thing the theory of relativity tells you that let's just take the special theory of relativity, which is the, the first and simpler version, is that you can also slice things up in different ways. You can take, and, and this, this would happen naturally if, if our, one, obs- one set of observers sets up things, uh, a, a division into space and time, and then you have other observers that are moving with respect to those at a constant velocity, it will be natural for them to divide space and time in a different way, to have different slicings that sort of mix up the original space and time. And the remarkable thing that relativity says is that they will arrive at the same equations. So it kind of destabilizes mm. the notion of time as a separate entity from space, because it says there are they're other just as good times, at least from the point of view of the fundamental equations of physics, one as any one time there are are alternative times that are just as good (laughs) now that's about the fundamental equations it's not about the world we actually experience of course because there is a preferred time namely the time that points back to the big bang and a uniform Mm. space
0: but you're saying that in a different frame of reference the one set of observers could say that a preceded b but another set of observers moving re- with respect to the first set could say that B preceded A. Yes, right. And that that falls out of Einstein's that falls special out of theory Einstein's of relativity. relativity. Yep. Yes.
1: So there there is that possibility. But you know, on the other hand, there are also uh, observers can also agree that some some events definitely precede others. So there's kind of another world which is called the space-like region. But there's also a time-like region where you can order mm. things linearly. Anyway, it's, I mean, they're, they're, special relativity is a fascinating theory, and, uh, and we, we could discuss it easily for several hours. But it, 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 for, for present purposes, it made the traditional separation into a unique time and space unstable. Now we, we, there are other, other versions of time that mix in some space and have uh, but are just as good as far as the uh, fundamental equations are concerned
0: well does the fact that there's a preferred frame at least defined with respect to the big bang give us a notion of simultaneity that that is valid i mean is there some place from which i can say yeah in in
1: cosmology yeah in cosmology we we commonly use that language when we we say, for instance, that a, a given star was formed umptity ump ump mm. seconds after the Big Bang. We can say that about distant stars, and there's a unique definition. Because there's, only, if, if you, there's this preferred frame in which the universe, the distribution of galaxies looks uniform. If you move relative mm. to that frame, then it won't look uniform, there'll be mm. some distortion. And the colors won't be quite uniform either, and uh, so so there is a preferred frame, and so there's a prefer so, so there's a preferred rest frame, and you commonly in cosmology use that as as a way of synchronizing times across distant across distant galaxies. So, but but in in everyday life, as opposed to cosmology, <laughs> the different frames are more or less equivalent. If you if you Cancel out the astrological influence of distant galaxies, so to speak. What's left allows you freedom in the, in the mm. definition of time. There are many times that are equally good.
0: Okay, so we have a space-time continuum of some kind, which is a, it is a kind of medium, right? I mean, it is the kind... It is, oh,
1: that's the other thing, yeah. right. That's the other thing, is that when you go to the more advanced parts of physics from special relativity to general relativity in particular, then you find that it's very, very convenient and really unavoidable unless you want are satisfied with extremely ugly equations. It's very, very convenient to treat the three dimensions of space and one dimension of time as a unified structure. Because the equations display tremendous symmetry between space and time. Hmm. There are still distinctions, but there's also tremendous symmetry between space and time, and you can only separate them at the cost of making the equations very unnatural.
0: Right, but also we have you know further phenomena like gravity, which seem best explained in terms of. Space-time itself being exactly the sort of thing that can bend, right?
1: Exactly, right. That that's the that's the leading idea of the general theory of relativity. And as I said, it's very difficult to formulate the bending equations in an elegant way without explicitly bringing in the idea of space and time as a uniform, as a coherent, integrated three plus one dimensional entity.
0: Okay, so we have this context of our experience, we have this condition of space-time, which now, disconcertingly, we've learned is not just a mere context in which the things that exist can happen. Rather it is a kind of thing itself, yeah. right? It it has That's a, right. It's not a void. Yeah. It's
1: not a void. <laughs> <laughs> that notion was something that, you know, famously Aristotle rejected, and and most thinkers rejected until Newtonian physics, which mm-hmm. works very, very well with uh, space being just sort of an empty platform or a stage through which particles move. But in modern physics, we've reinstated space-time as a substance. I would say' it's, it has a life of its own in many ways it's the, the primary entities we use to describe the world are co- all core fields and actually quantum fields, but they're space-filling entities that vibrate. And the things that we call particles are excitations within these fields, but they fill all space and all time. And the elegant description of how they work uses that description. And most dramatically, space-time itself is like an elastic medium that can bend and warp. And in the general theory of relativity, the kinds of distortions of motion we call gravity are ascribed to that bending and warping of space time Mm. in very successful equations. And we also, in very recent years, have learned that uh, so-called empty space actually weighs something. (laughs) Mm -hmm. This is called the dark energy. Einstein called it the cosmological constant. But Basically, what it is, is that space-time itself has an intrinsic density. So you know, it's a substance by, a, uh, it's a very respectable substance by uh, mm. any reasonable definition. It's not, it's not a void.
0: Okay, so, so again, we'll see if we can somehow conserve our intuitions, or at least notice when we're violating them here in, in building up this picture. So we, we have this, people are listening to us, well, let's assume their eyes are open or they can open their eyes, <laughs> and you know they they see the space in front of them, occupied by mm. you know the objects on their desk and their, their perhaps their hands. If they wave their hands in front of them, they can feel the air, right, which is yet more yes. stuff in this what once seemed like a void-like condition. but what we're now being told that this condition, the, the only place in which they experience their own being, has all kinds of structure that is not apparent yes. and which is really only fully captured in the mathematical devices and discoveries we've we've used to tease out this structure. I guess, but before we jump further into the constituents of things, do you have any thought as to why mathematics works here? I, I, th- I remember that <sighs> Eugene Wigner wrote a, a paper, I think in 1960 yeah. or so about the what we call the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in yeah. the natural sciences I mean it just seems a very strange accident that apes like ourselves uh-huh. have enough linguistic ability or at least some of us do to develop a, a symbol system that produces not only an uncannily yes. powerful description of what we can understand but actually has predictive value. It points into the darkness of nature and suggests what we might find there. And then lo and behold, we find those things, whether it's you know yes. the, the absurd energy in the, in the center of an atom or <laughs> more of the electromagnetic spectrum that we can't see with our unaided yes. eyes. Why does any of this work?
1: It's a gift. I don't know <laughs> it's rock bottom, and it, doesn't ha- it didn't have to be that way. No. I mean it's, it's, I think uh, I think it's been a, continu- a continuous revelation and surprise and gift as science has developed you know since since the 17th century, the sort of modern science where we make extreme demands of accuracy and, and test things very hard and so forth. it's been. The program is to try to understand things fully and deeply and probe with uh, all the accuracy we can muster and get, at the same time, try to boil down what we find into as compact a description as possible. Even if the description has to be kind of in an unusual language, which we call mathematics, that's very different from what we hear at cradles. And uh, it's worked. (laughs) And and, and, uh, surprise after surprise, more and more layers, you know, Newton's theory of gravity, and then Maxwell's electrodynamics, and then quantum mechanics, and relativity, and quantum chromodynamics. The equations uh, get more structured in some ways, but I think there's a tendency that they've actually gotten more beautiful and certainly more comprehensible and more comprehensive, less comprehensible, Mm -hmm. maybe Mm -hmm. more comprehensive so that now I think we've gotten very close, if not to the rock bottom foundation of understanding how ordinary matter works. So sufficient for biology, chemistry, and all forms of engineering. And we can summarize it in a few equations. And it didn't have to be that way. That's, what, that's why yeah. I say it's, it's a gift. For instance, and, and, and I think there's an important thought experiment. You can imagine, and people have imagined, and people you know, even have gone off the deep end on this, but, but you can imagine that uh, someday artificial intelligences will be fully embodied And general intelligences within computers. And Mm. you could even imagine that these artificial intelligences were not sensing the same world that we're sensing, that they they would be sensing electronic inputs that were designed by some programmer. So this would be these would be worlds in which intelligent design is actually true. (laughs) Right. right. (laughs) But uh but the laws wouldn't have to have this character. The laws would be whatever the designer or the programmer, imposed. And they wouldn't have to have the character of deep simplicity and mathematical coherence that we find in our world. So it's a gift. And I don't know any way to explain it other than to say that's that's the way it is. It's a wonderful gift.
0: I mm. mean, following that argument, couldn't we be in a simulation wherein we're no more in touch with the base layer of reality, but it's just our simulation is consistent in all the mathematically satisfying ways, or at least seems to be thus far.
1: It could be, but it would be very, very wasteful programming practice to sort of hide so much complexity mm. inside useless <laughs> things that, uh, that don't directly support the presumably the interesting thoughts that are going on. Or the interesting games, if you think about a, a, a Super Mario world or something. If I were programming Super Mario, I wouldn't make the bricks out of quantum mechanical atoms. Mm-hmm. No, it just, it's just an awful waste. <laughs> to, right. uh, and 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 also, you you know, you you really could make a lot of creative use out of having more than one version of time. For instance, I mean, you could have mm-hmm. astrology being true. You could have people moving back and forth doing time travel. You can have all kinds of things once once you free yourself of uh, constraints that we seem to have in our actual physical reality. But mm. that doesn't seem to be the world we live in, for better or worse.
0: Okay, so back to uh, the world we live in, uh, or, seem, or, to... <laughs> or seem to live yeah. in. <laughs> yeah, um, because, well... because,
1: you know, intelligent design, so I, I, I'm Sort of joking, but not really. That's mm. what Intel. I think intelligent design is maybe the future, but I just don't see much evidence for it in the world we actually experience. Yeah. This. Yeah. Yeah. If, in other words, or they're going to be intelligent designers. It's going to be humans or their successors.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, but you, you've you've heard the simulation argument <laughs> that I think is originates
1: with. Oh Nick yes, Foster. I've heard it. I've heard it, and I've and I've thought yeah. about it, and I think. No, oh, no. I, I mean, I've, that that kind of idea is very old,
0: right? But the the added wrinkle here, that I think it's the the wrinkle he's introduced, which is there's just a f- couple of minimal assumptions you need to get what seems to be the the following probabilistic conclusion. If you assume that, leaving aside the possibility of intelligent aliens that we know nothing about that have computers. Mm it might be running simulated worlds if you just imagine that our species doesn't annihilate itself and we continue to get better at building computers yeah. at a certain point we will build simulated worlds on our computers complete with right. with conscious entities like ourselves yes and seemingly by definition simulated worlds will outnumber real worlds because there's just they'll just be functionally infinite number yeah. of of worlds that you could create. <laughs> so then, just as a matter of probability, you should assume you're in a simulated world rather than a, a real one.
1: Right. Well, you know, probabilities are always relative to priors. Mm. And, uh, and we have an alternative scientific framework in which things are what they seem, <laughs> more or less, that mm. the, the universe em, uh, follows the laws of physics as, as more or less as we know them. And there was a big bang. And there has, just hasn't been time for those developments to take place, if they're ever going to take place. Mm. And if you just look at the internal evidence, as we discussed, our world, I don't think it, how should I say, our world doesn't look like it's a programmed world. It just doesn't. And so if, it, if it's programmed, if there is an intelligent design to it, it's very non-intuitive. And it's and and and, and let me put it as a challenge, I guess, to Nick Bostrom or whoever wants to propound that kind of idea. Tell me something about the world that I can understand better on the basis of this picture mm-hmm. than on the conventional you know the now conventional framework of uh physical science i i mm-hmm. I, don't, I, I don't know of any such example, and I don't think there is one. <laughs>
0: Actually, on that point of intuition, which is, uh, yeah. it's interesting. I our, mean, our intuitions obviously have evolved in uh, entirely in a context that has left us blind, both perceptually and intuitively to the domain we're talking about the very small, the very large, the very old, the very fast, right? We have, we have mm-hmm. intuitions for, for how, you know, thrown objects can behave local to the forces that a a human body can participate in. All the experiments
1: we do as babies. Exactly. (laughs) And mostly as adults, unless we decide to study science.
0: Right. But when you're talking about moving fast enough so that, you know, you're approaching the speed of light and time slows down, or you become increasingly massive, or the energy that that exists internal to the nucleus of an atom, or the fact that atoms are as small as they are, but and nevertheless mostly empty space, like all, all of these facts that we understand in physics are not facts that we should have any intuitions for. So, that, so one punchline seems to fall out of, out of this, and this is actually this is something that I've discussed with Max Tegmark before, who uh, you must mm-hmm. know him. He's, you're, you're both at oh, MIT, yes. right? Oh, yes.
1: I've even written papers with him.
0: Yeah, yeah. So Matt, he, Max is a great guy. I mean, his, his claim is that we, we should absolutely expect the right answer written at the back of the book of nature, to be deeply non-intuitive, given that our intuitions, if we're going to take evolution and evolutionary logic seriously, we should be suspicious of any answer that is at all commonsensical to us, or or that Mm. fits comfortably within our apish intuitions.
1: Well, that's the way it's worked out, yes. I mean, we how should I say but it's not even it's not an open question anymore <laughs> we hmm. we know we know a lot, maybe it's not the final language, but we know the language of nature and we know what the operating system is, you know, maybe not in all details and but but for most practical purposes we we uh, we know what the operating system is, and surely it is not comprehensible or in terms in the in the terms that we use we use. In everyday life to get around. That's mm. that's that's really what I try to capture in this notion of being born again. You have to you have to learn a, a new way of thinking that's mind expanding, requires you to revisit things that you thought you knew and, and use an enormous imagination to come to grips with what accurate observations and critical thinking
0: mm.
1: reveal. But the good news is that. It can be understood. And that's the amazing thing, which which I guess, you know, this unreasonable success, if you like, is that it can be understood. That's And I've tried to convey this in a slim book, <laughs> that the, the, not, which of course doesn't contain the equations, or, or, but does, I think, contain the essential concepts and the kinds of philosophical questions that they settle or or certainly address and with deep illumination so yes they are surprising they're very surprising if that's if that's the claim i I fully agree with it
0: okay so so back to what exists here because i last left our listeners with hands outstretched waving them around in (laughs) what uh they imagined was three-dimensional space and feeling the air And we've established that space-time itself is not merely the void context of the things that happen, it is itself a kind of object, it's a kind of medium that uh, the bending of which explains gravity, among other things. So let's introduce into this space, or into this condition, the minimal ingredients for the universe as we know it. What is there in front of us and as us? What is the matter that gets introduced here?
1: So for most purposes of engineering, of biology, of chemistry, and most of astrophysics and cosmology, the number of ingredients is very small. You have quarks, actually two kinds of quarks, up and down quarks, so-called. Then you have gluons. You have photons and you have electrons, and that's it. And I guess you could you could say I also need gravitons to to hold things together Mm. on large scales. But chemistry, nuclear physics, all that stuff can be understood in terms of a few building blocks that occur in many, many identical copies, and the list of building blocks is very small. At a deeper level, those building blocks themselves should be thought of as defined by having a very very small number of properties basically they have mass charge and spin and that's all Hmm. and so and they're they don't have sizes or shapes or structure they are real they are really points where charge mass and spin are concentrated and then at a more technical and deeper level they are they should be thought of not as hard points or uh, particles in the sense that people intuitively think about particles but as concentrations of charge mass and spin inside continua that feel all space the so-called fields mm. so it gets further and further from our everyday notions of uh, of, of what a particle is or what a building block is. And, and of course, it, it takes Democritus's idea that there's no such thing as hot and cold or wet and dry or color or many of the things that, that we use in our everyday description of the world, but only atoms in the void. It takes that idea to a new level of abstraction, but also accuracy. <laughs> and comprehensiveness that that we build our description of the world out of a few kinds of concentrations of these very basic properties that interact according to very strict laws that we've determined
0: if i could just make another pass over that terrain just to help orient myself and uh, the listeners so we we have a few number of particles which are best thought of not really as the particles of billiard balls of models past, but more as expressions right. of underlying fields themselves.
1: Right. If you really want to get let down to rock bottom, yes. <laughs> the, right. You know, you, of course, you know, in, in practice, chemists and other people, you have intermediate models where you do have balls and distributions of atoms that are hard and so forth. But if you get down to rock bottom, you need to strip away all that.
0: so th- there's a, a common notion, I guess probably built up from the Niels spore atom, which is that you have this tiny nucleus where most of the mass yes. is located, and it's it is orbited by electrons, which are you know, much tinier still. There's a vast Region of so-called empty space between them, so that and this yes. this gives rise to popular notions that you know, as solid as anything seems, your tabletop or your your own body, anything you can point to is in fact mostly empty space. Yes, is that a cartoonish vi- vision of a cartoonish yes, distinction it's, it's between car- the something and the cartoon, nothing? It's a
1: cartoon. It's it's a cartoon in the good sense that it it sort of is oversimplified, but sort of gives you the correct spirit, I would say, of of things that, so I talked about, you know, really, you should think about concentrations of charge and mass of spin and spin. Mm -hmm. And in quantum mechanics, there's a wave function, which tells you the probability that those charges weight, and spins, if you observe them, will be distributed different ways. And what you find in kind of the rock bottom description of something like an atom is that the wave function almost always i mean describes many possibilities, but the overwhelming mm-hmm. preponderance of those possibilities has most of the positive charge concentrated in a small region where that's what's called the atomic nucleus, and then a cloud of other particles much more widely distributed the 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 uh, the electrons their their charge. Points are are more more widely dispersed, typically in different patterns, and but so the the bore is kind of a caricature picture of that that is simple to convey and and sort of works roughly speaking for for many for practical purposes and some kinds of chemistry, but but the accurate description is more abstract and Mm. and less intuitive, (laughs) but perfectly definite. And and once you learn to work with the equations, you can develop intuition and pictures and things.
0: You've given us a universe where we have two types of quarks and gluons, which hold them together, and photons and electrons, all of which are expressions of are best thought of as, as expressions of underlying fields? Absolutely, yeah. And, and none, none of those fields, no one of those fields collapses to any other? There's no field that accounts for any two of no, these things?
1: Well, it does seem that we need separate fields for each of them. However, there are prospects of what are called unified theories in which these fields are related to each other so that the existence of one is implied by basic principles and the existence of another. Just as if you have a die, say, if you know that, there's, that it has one side, then you know it has, inevitably yeah. has five other sides mm. that are related to it. So although they're different, they're all related. And from a higher point of view, if you understand what a die is, then they're all, the same, they're all part of the same thing. Mm. So in our unified theories, we still have separate fields for for these different entities, but those fields are all aspects of an er field, a more basic entity about which we can say things and make intelligent observations.
0: Okay, so take me from the quarks and gluons and electrons and then photons to the, um, the constituents of matter that people will be more familiar with. So give me protons yeah, and neutrons okay. and atoms and molecules right. out of that.
1: So from quarks from quarks and gluons which interact very very strongly with one another they they agglomerate into protons and neutrons which are the things that typically you encounter in high school chemistry textbooks or especially older ones. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the the protons and neutrons, because of residual forces among the underlying quarks and gluons, which are the more basic entities, they, they, they bind together into atomic nuclei. And those are, because the forces of attraction are very strong, the atomic nuclei are very small relative to the atoms which are held together not by strong force but by the so-called electromagnetic force by the photons Mm -hmm. so the gluons do the tight binding of quarks and then the photons do the looser binding of electrons to to the nuclei and then but then you get to the kind of picture that you read about in uh elementary chemistry books where you have nuclei and electrons and The photons are really doing the job of the gluons for atoms. They they hold Hmm. the atoms together by electric forces. The photons have kind of a dual existence. They can exist as independent particles, as we see in light. Part photons are the particles of light, but they also have this role as when when you bend the photon field, so to speak, it produces electrical forces. And that's that's our modern understanding of what electrical forces are. So just as the gravitational force is bending of space-time, the the uh the electrical forces are bending of electromagnetic fields.
0: Mm. So when you say that gluons hold quarks together and photons hold electrons together. Yeah.
1: Is that is that actually it holds it holds electrons to nuclei. to nuclei, nuclei yes, right. So
0: In what sense is the particleness of a gluon or a photon the right concept to deliver that force relation?
1: Well, okay, this, this is one of the deepest aspects of quantum theory, that the same entity is described both as a particle and a wave, and for answering certain kinds of questions, It's best to think of it as a wave for thinking about other Mm. kinds of questions. It's best to think about it as a particle. The equations describe something that's neither a wave nor a particle, but sort of both. It has aspects of both those kinds of intuitions, but but neither captures it completely. Sometimes it's called a wavicle. Sometimes it's called a lave. It's a combination of of these things. A lave is lump and wave so the the photon let's talk first talk about photons, which may be a little more familiar, so photons are the particles of light. light we understand since the nineteenth century is an electromagnetic disturbance. it's a propagating wave of electric and magnetic fields that influence each other and move along in a way that solves maxwell's equations and. That's what we understand light mm-hmm. is. It's a dis- disturbance in electric and magnetic fields.
0: And it, w- it was Maxwell's equations that indicated that there would, there should be spectra of light that we can't see, but that yes, could be detectable right. and usable, like ra- right. radio waves. And- yeah,
1: at that radio waves, microwaves, infrared, ultraviolet, even X rays and gamma rays. They were all in these equations, mm-hmm. which were uh, devised to describe a much more restricted set of phenomena and that's one of the great triumphs of Mm. physics is that by understanding laboratory experiments on electricity and magnetism and to a lesser extent in optics you opened up this other world that was not so present in in the natural world before we engineered it but the whole world of radio and microwaves and so forth so uh, so that's a wonderful example of the unreasonable success of, yeah. uh, of, this, of our description of nature. But anyway, so, so the photons have this dual character. On the one hand, they are, they are the particles of electric and magnetic fields. That, so they are excitations within electric and magnetic fields, the, the particles of light, or of these other forms of, uh, of radiation, radio or so that propagate coherently as units and have kind of a particle character in that way. But also the electric fields can bend, if you like, or have values, we, we say that, so the non-zero electric field is kind of a bending in the electric field in, in, in the geometric description. And then, when you have bent electric fields, particles feel forces because they're subject to moving in this electric field mm. space. If you like, if you like, the mod, you can phrase all of modern physics in very geometric terms. It's not the way you see it in elementary treatments, but there is. But uh, it's the most beautiful description. Uh, it takes some getting. It takes some getting to. But when you get there, it's all. It's all very beautiful geometry in strange spaces. Anyway. But uh, the, yeah. so the the photons have this dual character. On the one hand, they're particles, and you can observe them as particles when they're light, or X rays or gamma rays, especially. But they also are inextricably linked to the possibility of exerting forces. It's the same. It's another aspect of the same fields, if you like, mm. that they can either produce excitations concentrated. Packets that look like particles, or they can bend and produce forces. So it's the same. There are two aspects of the same thing: force and substance are the same thing. Right?
0: So the way the wave-like side of the duality is more amenable to explaining its the exerting the force, force as opposed to the that's right the particles yes, exactly. So uh, yeah, and it's and the people... same thing for
1: gluons. The same thing for gluon. gluons Gluons, okay. in fact, are very very similar to photons. I like to say they're like photons on steroids. Photons respond to electric charge. Gluons respond to what are called color charges. Mm -hmm. They have nothing to do with colors as 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 in the common English (laughs) understanding. They're more like different kinds of electric charge, but they're not electric charge either. They're just a different thing. And there are three three different. There are three of them. They're very symmetric in the equations, and Whereas there's only one kind of photon, it turns out that there are eight kinds of gluons that respond to and change the different color charges among each other in very symmetric ways. But at their base, in especially in this wave and particle duality, gluons are very, very parallel to... Uh, photons. Mm. They they have much the same. So quarks are very much like electrons and gluons are very much like photons at the deepest level. Mm. And in the unified theories I was alluding to, it's pretty easy to construct unified theories of those in which the electrons and quarks appear as different sides of a die and uh, the photons and gluons appear as different sides of another die.
0: Okay. So I I want to stay with the subatomic particles and uh, and their forces, but I, I want to recklessly open the door to a, a whole branch of quantum weirdness that people will be familiar <laughs> with. I just want to quickly look inside this room and then get out of it as quickly as possible because we, we don't have time for it, but people will be familiar with this wave-particle duality from discussions of things like the double-slit experiment, which yeah. seems to open the door to the the much vaunted spookiness of quantum mechanics wherein the photon in this case seems to behave differently depending on whether or not it's observed and this has caused people yes. to introduce consciousness as a an inextricable part of the the mechanics of things or there are interpretations of these spooky data that take consciousness out of the picture but at the cost of giving us a a multiverse that is shattering in each moment with um, nearly identical copies of itself, wherein, you know, trillions upon trillions of nearly identical people (laughs) are living nearly identical lives, uh, having observed different behaviors of a specific photon. What interpretation of that spooky area of quantum mechanics do you favor?
1: Well, first of all, I, I think, I don't think it's necessary to introduce consciousness as a separate phenomenon in the world that's separate from the laws of matter. I think we should aspire to describe consciousness as an emergent property of matter. Mm. I don't think we've quite got there yet, but I don't see any showstoppers in in neurobiology Mm. is is proceeding nicely. And, uh, you know, we have understood at a molecular level, metabolism and heredity and I, well, this is
0: I, this is yet another dangerous door to open. I, I re, <laughs> I let's not open the door I, of so, consciousness. Anyway,
1: so 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 I don't think I certainly don't think we need to inject consciousness into the description of quantum mechanics.
0: Then does that leave you with the many worlds interpretation?
1: I I don't think you know I don't th- you know we we do experiments with measuring instruments and. And they register results. And I don't think anyone has to observe those results in order for them to be stable and valid. And so it's just, and you know, I think the early universe, which we described using quantum mechanics very successfully, no one was around to observe Mm -hmm. any of it. And so, uh, so I, I just, I have no sympathy whatsoever for those kinds of. Okay, ideas. so you,
0: you don't like the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, or that, does that you... Oh, make I do like a... that.
1: No, no, I like a version of the Copenhagen interpretation, which I don't think is incompatible with that idea. It, the observer doesn't have to be a human. It could be hmm. a, a machine or an apparatus. The many worlds interpretation is, well, I think it's mostly a play on words, actually. The, I think the description I gave you earlier, and we talked quite a bit about the underlying reality being a wave function, but we don't mm-hmm. know it completely. I think that's that's the formalism of quantum mechanics, and it's been very very successful. So there's it's never failed, <laughs> and so I think we're talking about the interpretation of this formalism. And all all competent practitioners know how to use it and will agree on the answers. And then when you t- then there's a, a, a question of sort of How you talk about the fact that we have incomplete knowledge of the wave function? Do you say that, well, really, there's a God that has complete knowledge of the wave function, and those, therefore, all the universes that God knows about are real universes, and so those are many worlds, or do you kind of use a more humble description where you say we have to deal with the fact that we only have partial knowledge? And those other universes aren't really accessible to us, and so we should uh, sort of tend our gardens and not, not, uh, not pretend to be God and worry about these other universes, which, for all practical purposes, are inaccessible. So it's, yeah, so that, that's, that's the way I uh, feel about it. In, in some, you know, in some moods, I have a lot of sympathy for the many worlds interpretation. I say, mm. by God, this these wave functions—they're so beautiful and they describe so much—that uh, they should have a certain independent reality, even though we can't know that reality and even though we never actually access it. So yes, there are these many worlds in that sense. But in more sober moments, I say calm down, <laughs> calm down, mm-hmm. <laughs> describe, describe. You should, you should be content to describe the reality we actually uh, inhabit, which is wonderful enough. And you can play with those fantasies and try to bring in little hints of these other worlds. And so there, you, can, you can sort of scratch at the edges of them and do interesting things. But I don't, I don't see... The virtue of uh, going wild and and, mm. and pretending that they those other things have reality in the same sense that reality that we experience does.
0: Well, is is that to counts just to counsel a kind of instrumentalism with respect to the the physics here, or
1: yeah, I guess you could call it that. Just or humility or something that <laughs> just mm. or minding your business you know tending your tending M- mind your, your own business, business. <laughs> tending 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 to your business and not right. not trying to play god and, right. and, or pretending you're god yeah, that, although you know but 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 again i think as a creative scientist and physicist it's fun to play with these ideas and they can be evocative i just think it's kind of I don't I wouldn't call it dangerous because I, I don't know that it's actually caused any harm to anybody, but it's it's kind of pandering to, to, to purvey this to the public without proper, that doesn't have a proper understanding of what the words actually mean, you know, mm-hmm. it's just, it's not, a, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's what, I, I'll leave it at that.
0: <laughs> well, I, I, now to even be more reckless and open another door here, you do run into a similar kind of pandering weirdness if you just imagine the consequences of this single universe that we're aware of being infinite, right? I, I don't know what probability you would assign to that, but if it were infinite, then one mm-hmm. you know, probabilistic consequence of that would be you would expect that if you just go far enough in any one direction, yes. you're, you're going to come upon exact copies of ourselves having the same conversation on a planet very much like Earth, but just with better Italian restaurants. <laughs> Could be. <laughs>
1: Could be. But uh, yeah, but it, it's, uh, let's, say, let's say it's at the far borders of speculation. It's fun to think about, but it, it doesn't help me with describing the world I actually experience or want to have power over or understand better in in my work or, or my life
0: <laughs> i guess i have two questions on that front is there any reason to believe that uh, we're dealing in with a situation of infinite space-time oh. or is there or is there a good reason to believe that's not the case given that we have a big bang in our past
1: well okay so there is A sense in which we can be confident that we're dealing with a finite space-time, that is, if we say that there was a Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago, approximately, and that there's a finite speed of light, then light from too far away hasn't had time to reach us and so there's a limit to how far away things can be which is called the horizon and mm-hmm. that and that that's a that's a, a i don't know if you call that a practical limit or a limit of principle that, but you can't that you can't access things that are further away than that now that doesn't mean that they don't exist in some platonic sense or more concretely that if you wait long enough so that you know it's, it's there's more time since the big bang and light has more time to reach us from further away than the horizon expands and it could keep expanding indefinitely so mm-hmm. it's never actually infinite but it could get it gets larger with time right so that that's one subtlety the other the other subtlety is that this all depended on the idea this discussion depended on the idea that there really was a Big Bang which limits our ability to observe. If we could devise or theories and understanding that shows that there was a prehistory to the Big Bang, then, then maybe you know, the, the universe expands. I mean our concept of the universe expands and there and might 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 even be infinite if you trace go back go backwards and time is backwards. Backwards go indefinitely, and, and things can have a long time to propagate. Or maybe the speed of light is not the limiting speed. There are many possibilities at the borders of speculation that could make mm. things infinite. Well, let me summarize. But let me summarize the most salient point I think, which is that if we take things sort of as they stand in a practical sense, with a very broad definition of what practical means, we say that there's a big bang and that light sets the speed of light sets a limiting speed for information to, to propagate, then the region of space-time that's accessible to us is finite. However, it, could, it, 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 gets, it keeps growing and could, in principle, grow without limit as time goes on. And then, if the whole framework is wrong, then all bets are off. Then, then yes, mm. it could be infinite in other ways. Another thing that's interesting to say in this regard is that if you don't look out, but look in to uh, structure on smaller and smaller scales, there's more and more structure. So relative to that, the scale by which you have to magnify the most basic ingredients to get to our actual experience might be one divided by infinity. Uh, So there's there's a possible infinity in the other direction. Mm. That people don't talk about, but very much, but is is in a way more realistic and closer to home because we can we can actually access it. And although the world exposed by quantum mechanics and quantum field theory is not truly infinite, or at least the que- the question is subtle, I would say, it's really really large, and we barely scratch the surface of, of mm. it in our in our engineering.
0: Okay, so I I promise to get back to um, uh, human scale here, but just to close the, the loop on this concept of the infinite, do you share the mathematical and, I guess, probabilistic intuition that if we knew that the universe, that space, I mean, even to put this in the cartoon version, that space was infinite, that one consequence of that would be that everything that can happen is happening an infinite number of times. I mean, well, infinity is so big that it's it requires that anything that has any probability of happening, it will happen an infinite number, number of times.
1: Well, you're asking me to speculate on on sort of very very uncertain very uncertain grounds. There are certainly mathemat there in mathematics, infinity is a very subtle and well-developed concept there are different concepts of infinity and some some are
0: larger than others which is and some are larger than
1: others that's right (laughs) and so you can have things that happen an infinite you can have paths on a torus for instance that wind around and around in a regular way that uh never intersect each other but Keep going forever <laughs> and mm. f- and fill up the torus very very densely. Mm. So 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 I I'm not sure that it's it's a necess- Even if you imagine that things go on forever and and it's infinity and some infinite in some sense, it I don't think it means that you can reproduce the same thing accurately over and over again necessarily. Mm. It's not inconceivable, but I don't think it's a necessary consequence.
0: All right, so let's table that, but I invite you to argue with Max Tegmark about that the next time you guys get together. <laughs> after <laughs> after, after you guys get your vaccines for COVID, go uh, get to a bar and uh, argue about the consequences of, of spatial infinity. All right, so I'm, I'm taking you back, uh, we're hurling you back to the atom. Let's briefly talk about the forces uh, that we we have every reason to believe exist. What are those, and uh, how do we know about them?
1: Well, we know of four fundamental forces at present. And again, it would be difficult to overstate how well-established and powerful and quasi-complete this description is, I mean, for practical purposes, complete. And th- that it's, it, it's based on having four fundamental forces Two of which are fairly familiar, and we've discussed them in passing quite several times already, which is, uh, or we touched on them, which is gravity and electromagnetism. So gravity holds together the cosmos, basically works on the dominant, it's the dominant force on very large scales. And we have a beautiful theory, general relativity, that seems to capture most of the phenomena of gravity very well. Then we have electromagnetism with Maxwell's equations and the quantum elaboration of them in quantum electrodynamics. Then we have two more forces that were only discovered in the 20th century and uh, are really in the natural world are manif- become obvious only when you study deep inside atoms, atomic nuclei, how, how they react together and what their, what their constituents are and how they decay. Things like that, and those are called the strong and weak force. Uh, let me leave the weak force to the side for the moment. It's complicated, and we don't. It's the least part, of, least satisfactory mm. part of our understanding of nature. And
0: it's it's not really quite force like in the way that the others are, right?
1: No, it's not. It's it's a theory of transformations, really, more than forces. Although, at a deep level, mathematically, it works on the same principles. Mm. The uh, but the strong force is the, is, the, is the thing I got the Nobel Prize for. It. It, uh, it's, it's the thing that is responsible for holding atomic nuclei together. But at a deeper level, we understand that the basic theory is best formulated and leads to simple equations if you go to the level of quarks and gluons. And uh, so it's a theory of how quarks and gluons interact most powerfully with each other and how they bind into atomic nuclei and so forth. So, so, so the strong force is the strongest force in nature, as its, na- as its name suggests, and it really has to do with mm-hmm. how quarks and gluons interact.
0: Just to be clear, the, the strong force is the force between quarks and gluons? Or is That's it, right. or, or is it the, also the force between their l- larger categories, protons and neutrons? The
1: basic, it's, it's like in chemistry, the basic forces are electrical forces, so you mm. might say they're forces between electrons and, and, and nuclei, but there, once you form an atom, there can still be residual forces that are sort of leak out, that are still electromagnetic forces, but mm. are sort of leaked forms that lead to uh, formation of molecules and more complex structures. Similarly, in, in the strong force, the basic interactions, the simple, profound equations relate to how quarks and gluons interact with each other. One consequence of that is that you form these protons and neutrons, and those are kind of nice, coherent objects that are concentrations of quarks and gluons that, that mostly stay together, but they're also residual forces. and atomic nuclei are held together by these residual forces between protons and neutrons. So atomic nuclei, in this analogy, would be like molecules, whereas protons and neutrons are like atoms.
0: So obviously the the most compelling rhetorical demonstration of the strong force arrived at um, Alamogordo for the Trinity test, and ever since we have not been in doubt of its existence. (laughs)
1: Well, (laughs) it's it's necessary in order to hold the atom. I mean, people knew that there had to be a force that would hold atomic nuclei together because the electrical forces are in the wrong direction. Well, the protons all want to repel each other and blow up. Mm. So there had to be another force, and figuring out what it was was the at the top of the theoretical physics agenda and experimental for that matter, for uh, most of the twentieth century, say from the the, from the Late 1920s until the mid 1970s, when we got the right idea finally. <laughs> mm.
0: And so, so that the the energy released in a fission bomb or a fusion bomb—maybe you can take either or both. If there's an important difference here, are we getting the full separation of quarks and gluons there, or no? Or how it's would you describe really... what's happening?
1: It's really rearrangements of protons and neutrons right. that happens there into more energetically favorable forms.
0: Is there more energy in, in the atom than is being released in our biggest explosions?
1: Oh, yes. How, in principle, we, how, there's much more. That's what stars are all about. <laughs> they, uh, they, uh, they burn atomic nuclei more efficiently than we can do in uh, bombs. No, they're, they're sort mm. of you know their power. Their, their power is basically they're they're continuously setting off hydrogen bomb explosions, and that that's how they shine. They mm. they burn they they burn the nuclear fuel. That was the, that was a the, during the Big Bang there was incomplete combustion because the universe was expanding so fast the protons and neutrons couldn't really get together and burn completely, and now they they they're brought together inside stars or inside bombs. Mm and then you can burn them further. So it's very, very, it's it's very nice analogy to maybe more familiar chemical processes, but this works on a nuclear scale.
0: How efficient are stars?
1: The stars typically uh, blow up before they can finish the job, (laughs) the stars. Mm. The the most stable burning would be to uh, iron nuclei. Mm. And that happens Gradually, for white dwarf stars, so it's stars that uh, collapse and then gradually, gradually, gradually burn completely to just iron cores. But most, but stars that don't form white dwarfs, or or the the rest of the star that that blows off before the white dwarf congeals at the center, is incomplete combustion. So it releases elements that have it releases the re- a, diff, a whole variety of elements that that were cooked mostly from originally hydrogen and helium into all the other elements that we know and love but that's incomplete burning the complete burning the most the most stable form would be iron
0: this is a, I now realize that uh, though we may live in a block universe we're getting to the end of our a lot of time here so i, I I'm uh, well aware that uh, if everything is a clock, the human bladder is uh, the most uh, (laughs) unforgiving of clocks. So, very quickly, you've given us a picture of a universe where we've got five particles, I guess there's a sixth if we add gravitons, that are are themselves expressions of fields in a space-time, which is itself a kind of medium, which is to say it's a something, not a void. And there are at least two other things that you describe in your book that that we need to add to this picture, and they're, they're a disconcertingly large part of the picture. What are dark matter and dark energy, and why do we need to care about them?
1: Well, we've discussed in passing, actually, without naming it, I think, may have named it, the dark energy, which is the observed fact, I think it's fair to say now that space-time itself has a non-zero density and although that density is very very small and has no real consequences no significant consequences sort of in our neighborhood on earth because there are much more powerful sources of gravity namely ordinary matter or even on the scale of the solar system when you look on cosmological scales because the universe is so empty of things like planets and stars, there's vast spaces in between, all those spaces have a tiny density that's the same everywhere and it all adds up. And in the universe as a whole, this dark energy, this non-zero density has very important effects on the dynamics of the cosmological expansion. And we don't really know of any deeper, secure, Description of what this density is. So in the equations, it's just a density. It may be that we'll be able to understand it in terms of other aspects of physical law, but at present, that's that's uh, a frontier of research hmm. and uh, it kind of stuck, I would say. <laughs> the other, but the other the other ingredient that astronomers have found is something that's co- that they call dark matter and this is a very interesting story it well it would take a long time to really describe all aspects of this problem or even many of the aspects of it but but let me try to s- sort of skip to the chase we can construct a an internally consistent and predictive picture of a phenomenon that astronomers have observed, which is that there's excess acceleration on many different scales in the universe. So there seems to be a source of gravity that we can't ascribe to any known kind of matter, but that looks to all the world like another kind of matter that was produced by the Big Bang that interacts with ordinary matter only very weakly except for its gravity and uh, we don't know and does not appear among the quarks and gluons it's something else and we right. don't know what it is and so that's called the dark matter
0: there's a possible point of confusion here is to look out at the night sky and wonder where the dark matter is is not the same thing as as wondering about all of the matter out there that you can't see because it's not illuminated as a star no or no the by, dark matter by a star.
1: the dark okay there's a, some confusion about spend, the word dark. You can easily spend two hours describing the dark matter problem. But yeah. the, uh, the the phenomenon is that there appears to be another form of matter which is distinct from, but maybe not qualitatively different from the kind of matter that we know and love in, mm. in our description of uh, everyday reality. So... Let me, let me be fairly, con- let me give you a little more concrete. So around every galaxy that's been carefully observed, one sees the luminous core, which is uh, made out of stars and gas clouds that are made out of protons and neutrons and quarks or quarks and gluons and photons mm. and electrons, the kind of matter we know about. And we can say a lot about that and observers know how to deal with it. And, uh, observe it in intelligent ways. But that stuff seems to be, if we if we study how that stuff is moving, it's moving too fast to be held together by the gravitational forces that it exerts. Mm. There seems to be another source of gravity that's not luminous, that's not the stuff we know about and don't have been able to detect, that's not dark in the sense of casting shadows. Or obscuring things behind it, it's just transparent. We don't see anything mm. at all. Which, but but we see, we've, we have this gravitational influence, and
0: well, why do we know we that have, black holes aren't enough to account for?
1: Well, any of this? black holes are one theory of what it might be, but there are problems with that. Uh, the, the, the the people have looked for consequences of it being of being black holes. If, if you If a black hole is moving around, it can occlude things behind it or cause them to move. And people have looked for those effects that they don't seem to be there. Also, it's very hard to get black holes formed during the Big Bang because the Big Bang, we know for sure, was very uniform. So black holes are not sort of not in the cards in any natural way. I mean, creative physicists have come up with theories that are possible where it might it possibly work if you bend yourself into a pretzel and and have a, a sense of humor and not very good taste you can imagine but but uh it but it it's very contrived mm. uh, a much more likely scenario is i think i'm somewhat prejudiced but i you know I believe in this <laughs> and mm. many people do that uh a much more conventional possibility is that There's a a new kind of very, very weakly interacting particle that gets produced during the Big Bang, weakly interacting both with itself and with the kinds of matter we know about that got produced during the Big Bang and is still hanging around and exerts gravitational influence, and that's the dark matter. Mm. This kind of thing is not unprecedented, neutrinos or something like that. But for various detailed reasons, neutrinos can't do this job. I think I know what the dark matter is. It's something called axions. This is a particle that was introduced for basically aesthetic reasons to make the laws of physics more logically compelling and beautiful. And uh, as it it turned out that this wasn't the the original motivation, but that motivation is valid. But it turned out also that if you run the predictions of this theory, for the, the, the including this new particle, run it through the Big Bang, you find that it produces something that for all the world looks like the dark matter that astronomers have observed. Mm. So it's become a great game now that thousands of PhD physicists, well, certainly hundreds, maybe a couple of thousands of PhD physicists are pursuing to find out if This dark matter is, in fact, made out of these theoretically predicted particles, axions. Mm. We can predict that they do interact with matter in certain ways, very, very feebly. So the experiments are difficult, but it's very, very exciting. We We might sort of have this fantastic synthesis where making the laws more beautiful also tells us what a big part of the universe that we didn't understand is made out of.
0: Well, that nicely brings us back to the, the mystery where we started, which is why should what is logically compelling and beautiful for apes like ourselves have any application to the way things are? But um, it seems like a very beautiful accident well, that we're, we we live in such a universe.
1: Yeah, it's worked so far. Mm. <laughs> that, uh, but, you know, it's also the fact, case that we're getting a lot of help now from our silicon friends. Yeah. so for Our silicon friends, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, our theory of uh, the strong interaction QCD, which which I mentioned, the equations are very beautiful, but they're very hard to solve. And without the assistance of our silicon friends, we probably wouldn't have been able to draw out their consequences in nearly the detail and power we've been able to. Hmm. So it's 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 quite conceivable that we'll need new ways of uh, using our imaginations and exploiting our silicon friends to uh, to understand the universe fully in the future.
0: All right. Well, that's another thing to talk to Max about, keeping those <laughs> silicon friends friendly, uh, as you know. <laughs> yes. Well, listen, Frank, I I, uh, I love the conversation. Thank you for the, the education. And um, I, again, I recommend people get your book because you traverse this material in in a way that it really is accessible. So, and again, that book is Fundamentals. 10 keys to reality. Thank you, Frank.
1: Well, thanks for the opportunity. I really enjoyed this. Bye for now.